Is Mulholland Drive named after William Mulholland? Yes, it is. That's kind of the amazing thing. This is the guy who single-handedly allowed L.A. to be a place, so he has a, a street named after him, but he died in disgrace. After the St. Francis Dam collapsed, he went into a deep, dark depression. He was mortified at how his decisions had caused such loss of life. He was never arrogant. He was never defensive. He immediately went public and say, if there's anyone to blame, blame me. And he died of a broken heart within a couple of years. This is Infrastructure Junkies. Welcome, Infrastructure Junkies, to your show. This is a podcast created by right-of-way professionals for right-of-way professionals. The Infrastructure Junkies podcast is the voice of the right-of-way industry, exploring eminent domain, right-of-way acquisition, and infrastructure development. Welcome back, Infrastructure Junkies. I'm Dave Arnold. And I'm Kristen Short. What? You heard me. Well, we love to have episodes that feature real-life infrastructure stories and all that comes along with it. Property rights, eminent domain, construction, PR battles. Death. Murder. Despair. Maybe a few of those things. Essentially, a colossal project that miraculously gets finished against all odds. It's every project manager's worst nightmare and yet their proudest accomplishment. You know, Dave, this reminds me quite a bit of the Los Angeles Aqueduct. This might remind me of the Los Angeles Aqueduct if I knew anything about it. If only we had a guest who might tell us a little bit about the Los Angeles Aqueduct. Oh, Dave, I have great news. Say you um, save money on car insurance? No. Are you going to go see the Barbie movie again tonight? No. I have a guest. Ryan Gosling. No. It is the one, the only, the TikTok famous, the armchair engineer, Mr. Adam Ratliff. Adam has over 103,000 followers on TikTok, and he has over 2 million likes. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome the armchair engineer. Hello, Adam. Hey, thanks for having me back, guys. I'm so glad you joined us again. Adam, have you seen the Barbie movie? I have not, but I did see Oppenheimer. (laughs) That's three hours long, Adam. (laughs) Nobody has a bladder that big. You know, three hours long, and it felt like three hours. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Well, welcome back, and thank you for joining us. Yeah, thank you for having me. We have had such a great response to your first appearance on our show. We were dying to have you back, and we are talking about something that I will be honest with you, I know very little about, and it's the L.A. Aqueduct. So I have to ask you just very generally, What is an aqueduct? Yeah, great question. Well, in the strictest sense of the word, an aqueduct is a bridge that transports water. Uh, But the term is sometimes used broadly to just mean a a long canal of some sort. So when you picture like uh, those old Roman bridges with the arches that have a a channel for water at the top, that's an aqueduct. But in the case of the LA aqueduct, it's referring to the entire 215-mile-long conveyance. It's a 250-mile-long canal from the central part of California all the way down to Los Angeles. So is the Los Angeles aqueduct unique? I mean, is it different than other aqueducts? It's unique in, in the time period that it was made. This was started before World War I. Uh, this was completed at, at a time when Los Angeles had a modest population near the sea, but people had vision for the city we have today, and they knew that that was impossible unless they found the water. And they found the water. It just happened to be 215 miles away. That seems really far to be transporting water. Yeah, that's if you're doing it in five-gallon buckets, you're going to need a lot of people. <laughs> I'm guessing that's not what they did. Are there other aqueducts in the United States? 
Well, it's an interesting story, but you would find that pretty much every large city in the world imports its water from somewhere. You just may not be aware of how they do it or where they get it from. For example, New York City imports its water from a place called the Croton Reservoir, which is located way out in the Hudson River Valley, some 30 to 50 miles north. And there's a network of canals that go more upstate that import water to New York City. For the longest time, New York City, which was just Manhattan at the time, was getting all of its water from wells. And the problem is, if you have your wastewater near your drinking water, pretty soon you have a disease epidemic. And the growth of New York City was really hitting its ceiling in the mid-1800s. And it wasn't until they invested in an aqueduct system, a canal, to bring water in from the outside that we got the New York City growth that we have today. And so Los Angeles is no exception. This is a place that would not exist if they weren't able to import their water. So... What was going on in L.A. when they decided they needed an aqueduct? I'm, I'm, I'm guessing it wasn't the bustling metropolis that it is today. Oh, hardly, hardly. It was, it was largely agricultural, but not great agriculture at that. Believe it or not, it was an oil boom town. If you went to Los Angeles in the turn of the century, you would see the beach along Santa Monica lined with oil rigs. Very different than what we have today. But the population was somewhere south of 100,000, fairly spread out, and it was all being watered by wells. They would sink wells down and be able to pull out a few hundred gallons a day. And that's what they lived on. And, and they knew that they wouldn't be able to grow beyond that unless they found an outside source. There was a municipal system. It was not owned by the city. It was a private enterprise that put in a series of pipes downtown. And uh, that was eventually bought by the city of Los Angeles, I think right around the turn of the century. And from there, they began the enterprise of finding outside water to bring in to the Los Angeles Basin. I've heard there's a bit of a story behind that. Oh, there's a, there's a doozy of a story. Are you going to enlighten us? I would love to. I would love to. So for the listeners who are not familiar with the geography of Southern California, the entire Los Angeles area is in a large basin near the sea, but it's actually surrounded by mountains. There's a large mountain range directly to the north that gets in some places as high as 10,000 feet above sea level. Very, very high. The problem is not a lot of water comes out of those mountains. Enough to cause a flash flood once in a while, but not enough to sustain a city. On the other side of the mountains, though, we have areas that aren't just high mountains, but also deep valleys that are cut off from access to the ocean. You think of places like Death Valley and the Imperial Valley. These are below sea level basins that don't flow out to the sea. There's a valley on the east side of the Sierra Nevada mountains called the Owens Valley or the Owens River Valley. It has enough snowmelt to sustain a year-round flow. There's an actual river there, but it ends in a lake, and that lake just evaporates. It doesn't connect to the sea, doesn't connect to anything else. There's a little bit of farming out there, but really not much. For those of you who are into rock climbing and mountaineering, the highest point in California, Mount Whitney, is directly above this Owens River Valley area. And so any snowmelt that comes off that highest mountain eventually goes into this valley, and then from there, it just evaporates. It's, it's lost as far as real outside use goes. And so around the turn of the century, around 1900, 1905, somewhere in there, uh, a group of, of prominent Los Angeles businessmen got the idea of acquiring the water rights secretly and then building a canal from that valley on the other side of the mountains all the way to Los Angeles. Because even though you have to cross the mountains, the elevation difference makes it all downhill. And so the water would be able to flow entirely by gravity from the Owens River Valley to the outskirts of North wait Los a minute, Angeles. Wait a minute. Two questions. Um, first of all, you're saying yeah. that from the Owens Valley all the way to LA, all downhill. Whoop. 
all downhill as long as you use tunnels to get through the mountains. Oh, yes. just you just got to tunnel through a mountain. No There's big deal. Look, that, that <laughs> pesky detail. Uh, hold on, Damn you, mountains in the way. You're talking about getting the water rights. In, did you say in secret? Yes. So the land was occupied, but sparsely. There was a little bit of agriculture out there. No large towns or cities, but there were farmers out there who were doing pretty basic agriculture, nothing large scale. And so when some of their neighbor's farms started getting sold, they didn't think much of it. And then before they knew it, plurality of them had been sold. And then all of a sudden the water rights transferred out. And overnight, they lost the rights to the water in their own stream bed, just overnight. And that led to a huge backlash. And a lot of these farmers felt uh, very much taken advantage of because they didn't know that the sales of the land was just for the water. They thought that they were going to have new neighbors who were interested in farming. But as soon as those water rights were transferred out, the farms dried up. And today there's almost no agriculture left in the Owens River Valley. Handful of ranches, but nobody's growing any fruit trees or, or any grain in the Owens River Valley anymore. I'm going to hit you with a kind of a blindsided question because we just did a podcast on what's called riparian rights, which means the right that conveys with water, okay? Usually associated with a shoreline. I'm assuming these people didn't have riparian rights on this riverbed. There was an incredible amount of bullying that went on during this time period. You don't And say. if this were to be repeated today, yeah, if this were repeated today, it would be done much more publicly and in front of judges. You end up in situations where the water was just taken, and so the farmers tried to take it back because the courts couldn't work fast enough. They were building the canal faster than everything was getting sorted out in court. It was very much a act first, ask for forgiveness later situation. And so part of the backlash included just a little bit of what we would call domestic terrorism today, where a lot of the farmers got together and found some sticks of dynamite, and they would go out and sabotage the canal line. They would try to blow up some of the siphon inverts. They would break the, the gates on the canal to release the water back into the Owens River. Anything to desperately try and get their farms back. Oh, my gosh. You know, it's amazing when we hear about these infrastructure projects from turn of the century or early America. And it's like, is the wild, wild west out there? It's crazy. Oh, it, it absolutely was the wild west. And in some ways it still is. A lot of people don't realize just how rural most of California is. Once you get outside the city, it changes in a hurry. And this is the part of uh, California that they never thought that they would have to deal with the city slickers coming to take their stuff, take their way of life. It just seems so far away, but 215 mile long canal, that's quite a stretch. And they built it fast. They built it quietly. They built it from the south going up so that the farmers wouldn't see the construction in their backyards. I mean, they, they had a plan. And once the water started flowing that canal, most of the farmers had no idea that the ditch was practically completed all the way to Los Angeles, and it was really too late to do anything about it. Can, can we talk a little bit about the route and the construction? It sounds like a lot of it is a, basically a trench, and some of it is filled in with or is concrete lined, and then there's, some, there's a pipeline aspect to it. But... What can you tell us about the actual construction and what was it other than just a big, big ditch? Well, what's amazing about it is the, the time period that it was made. You know, turn of the century before World War I, they had very basic steam shovels, but they didn't have the advanced construction techniques we have today. There were a lot of men with manual pickaxes and shovels who built this canal. This is the same era that the Panama Canal was being built down in Central America. Similar tool set, similar construction force. It was very labor intensive, especially the tunneling work that went through the San Gabriel Mountains. A lot of that was done by hand, by just 
men in dark, confined spaces with pickaxes and wheelbarrows. And to this day, a large percentage of Los Angeles's drinking water comes through tunnels that were built by hand. Oh my really? God. It's just hard to fathom that today. Like you would never do that today, but these tunnels have stood the test of time. They're still in operation today. What are they made out of? I'm assuming there's like pipes of some sort, right? Most of them are, are stone or concrete lined. Uh, very few of them are unlined just because of the nature of the geology, but they didn't have large steel manufacturing back then the way we have it today. So they're not steel pipes. These are stone lined or concrete lined pipes typically about 10 or 15 feet in diameter, somewhere in there. Wow. And they go for, I don't know about miles, but there are stretches that are a mile or so at a time. I, I understand that on the original route, 24 miles was open and unlined canal. Mm-hmm. 37 miles was lined open canal, and I presume it was lined with concrete. 97 miles of covered concrete conduit. 43 miles of concrete tunnels. What a, what an enormous project. What a what a headache for a project manager. I can't even imagine. Oh, it's huge. And there was some amazing innovation that happened along the way. For example, these mountains, sometimes they had to cross them by tunneling through, but other times the mountains dropped out in the form of canyons and they had to cross a low point. And building bridges is expensive, and they found a very innovative way to get around that through what we call an inverted siphon. They would get a steel pipe that was large enough to sustain large pressure and drop it down one end side of the canyon and then up the other side. And as long as the downhill side was within a few feet below the elevation of the first side, the water would pass through under great pressure, but it would work. And that was one of the earlier targets for sabotage. The farmers in the Owens River Valley who wanted to get rid of this canal, they set their dynamite strategically and blew those things up. And an interesting thing happens with those inverted siphons. You blow it up and all that water is still inside with all that gravity pulling on it. And it would actually pull the pipe closed, like a straw collapsing as you suck on it. It would just collapse it down on itself and uh, destroyed, I mean, millions of dollars worth of investment. In one case, they were actually able to reinflate the pipe by doing the opposite, by putting high pressure inside and allowing it to slowly reinflate. But those siphons are an absolute sight to behold. I mean, we're talking about crossing canyons four to 500 feet deep, half a mile across. It's pretty incredible. I understand that they, and I'm I'm looking at an article that you sent me, that this, the construction of this aqueduct or the planning and construction effectively eliminated the Owens Valley as a viable farming community. Okay. So, and and you said it was kind of sparsely populated with, with ranches and farms and whatnot. And relatively speaking, suddenly poof, gone. And do you know, was there just compensation paid to these people or were they just buying up the land enough to divert the water and say, so long, you're on your own? Knowing the character of the people involved, I'm sure that they paid the least amount possible without blinking an eye. This was not a just compensation scenario. This was very much a see what we can get away with scenario because there was just so much money to be made in Los Angeles. People were flocking to the area. They saw the growth potential and and they absolutely called it correctly. By the time we got to the the 20s and the Dust Bowl, this was the destination for the Grapes of Wrath generation, Mm -hmm. right? Right? People fleeing the Midwest. And they were all going to farms, both in the Central Valley up north, but also in the Los Angeles area that were being supported by this water. And so, I mean, on paper, it all worked out. But the cost was pretty steep. And what happened to those residents in the Owens River Valley was not right. It's almost like if you, if you build it, they will come. What made the L.A. area so special? Why L.A.? Why not, you know, 
60 miles north of that. Why not somewhere in Kansas? Like, why L.A.? <laughs> Besides, there's a lot well, of movie Kansas, stars Kansas there. Kansas was already a thing at the time, and I think people were pretty tired of Kansas. If you go 60 miles north of Los Angeles, you're in the San Joaquin Valley near Bakersfield. And that's a whole different set of water rights issues and a whole different story. But Los Angeles is just kind of the perfect place if you have the water. It's got a harbor that is relatively protected, so that makes it ideal for trade and and for shipping. Los Angeles is just in a a beautiful spot in a just-add-water sort of way. It's difficult to imagine that in some parallel universe with another civilization settling this exact same topography that they wouldn't have also built a city there. The timing might have been different. The water might have been different. But it's just a really great place. It's relatively flat. There's not a lot of natural disasters. The soil is fertile. There's oil underneath. And if you happen to be in the first part of the 20th century where we have this new technology called the moving picture, suddenly you have a whole industry to support in one of the most beautiful locations in North America. And so the new urbanists will say that every city is there because it's the most important site. And I think that Los Angeles definitely fits in that category. I know you talked about these businessmen who, who were the ones who were behind this. Who was that? And was their motivation to build L.A.? Were they wanting to grow or was it already growing and they were trying to accommodate the growth that was already in existence? Or were they greedy businessmen? Like, who were these guys? All of the above. Everything, <laughs> Everything that you just listed, I think, applies in this situation because they were great visionaries who saw the potential and they stood to profit from that growth. 100%, because they were in a position to buy land cheaply that was not worth very much until the water arrived. And then once the water arrived, they were in the right position to not only sell the water, but then benefit from the produce that was grown with the water. And so, yes, it, they were incredibly greedy, but it paid off. I mean, this is kind of like buying Google stock at the ground level. You know, is it greed? Absolutely. And yet here we all are using the Google search engine. And so that's exactly what they did. And to quote the famous movie made in Hollywood, greed is good. (laughs) I'm not going to go that far, but the thing is, people are still moving to Los Angeles to this day. And so as much as we like to look at that part of the desert and say that a city shouldn't exist, it sure seems like the preponderance of population growth says otherwise. Yeah. Yeah. And these guys were, what were their names? Ah, William O'Holland and Fred Eaton. They were old friends. They, they definitely saw the potential. William O'Holland was a self-trained engineer, which that, if that sounds a little sketchy, you're right. And that plays in the story later. Fred Eaton was a politician. He became mayor of Los Angeles, I think in 1898, somewhere in there. He was the guy who bought that small water company and turned it into the, the city's first municipal water supply. Ah, yeah. But, it, but it, the whole idea was that if we can grow this water supply, we can grow this city. And since we own all this land on the outskirts of town, we could stand to profit from it. And so, yeah, they came up with this plan. And William Mulholland was the guy, self-taught engineer, who came up with the route. He came up with the design of the aqueduct, figured out the optimal place to put the storage canals, the stepping stations, all of that. And it took them somewhere around seven years to build the whole thing. And the downstream terminus of this aqueduct is this dramatic stair step of water. They, they call it the Cascades. It exits a, a tunnel in the hillside and then falls down a series of baffles in, in this channel. It looks like a fountain you would see at a mall or a hotel. And at the opening ceremony, he famously got up there. William O'Holland personally opened up the valve. The water comes rushing out down this Cascades and shouted to the crowd, here it is, 
take it. <laughs> <laughs> hey, nothing like the time-honored American tradition of becoming rich when you're the mayor of a city, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yes. Moholland and his friends did quite well. I, I know that Eaton went on to, to big things. And there's other people that I haven't named that were a part of this, but they did very well for themselves. Uh, but it didn't come without a cost. I mean, the Owens River Valley to this day is not exactly in its original pristine state. It doesn't look like the way nature intended. Let's put it that way. Jumping ahead in the story, they eventually needed to expand the aqueduct. And instead of finding a new water source, they just worked their way further up the Owens River Valley and found an additional lake to manage. That lake is called Mono Lake. You may have seen it on the cover of National Geographic because they've taken so much water out of it. The water level has fallen and revealed these enormous geologic landforms that are very rare. Mono Lake is a, a famous endangered lake bed, largely because of the Los Angeles water system. Wow. I want to take a little bit of a detour. We had a magnificent episode on the Hoover Dam. Magnificent. And the name of the book is called Colossus, right? And that thing was built right and it's held the test of time. Well, these characters, I understand, needed to build a dam at some point to create a new reservoir or a new body of water, you know, to store. And there's a really interesting story with what happened to their dam, yeah. is there not? Yeah, the Los Angeles Aqueduct includes several dams and reservoirs, most of them as just part of the canal itself. Not all of it's in a pipe. There's some places where there's a large enough basin that it doesn't really need a pipe, so they just let it fill up the valley and they put a dam at the end. Like there, there's several of those reservoirs along the path. There is one specific area where they wanted to have a backup reservoir. They wanted to be able to store what they thought would be a year's supply of water for the city of Los Angeles. Because remember, the Owens River farmers were still mad and they had dynamite and they had threatened to blow up the canal. And so the thought was, okay, if the canal gets sabotaged again, we want to have some in reserve. And so adjacent to the line of the canal, they found a valley that is relatively dry. It has just a little creek running through it, but it was wide enough that it could sustain a fairly decent sized lake. And there was this one spot in the San Francisco Quito Canyon, one spot where the canyon narrowed to a really, really skinny neck. They thought if we put a dam right here and put some extra water out of the canal into this valley, we could have a backup storage lake. And they named the dam St. Francis Dam, St. Francis Reservoir, and it was the backup water supply for LA for about two years. The dam opened in 1926. It filled for the first time two years later. And I believe it was in, I think, May of 1928, it failed in the middle of the night, collapsed very, very suddenly, and killed somewhere between 400 and 700 people in the process. I think you're kind of understating it when you say it failed. The stuff, the accounts I've read of this, it's extremely dramatic. Like, they're talking about this enormous wall of water that, I guess, when the dam failed, just took off and oh, the, killed the dam, hundreds of the people. Dam, the dam burst all at once. It's one of the most dramatic dam failings we've ever seen. There have been many dam failures over the years. Most of them play out over a period of hours. This one played out in less than a minute, less than a minute. And the real tragedy is there was an early warning. The dam sprung a leak that morning and the dam keeper called on an early telephone down to LA and asked the chief engineer, Mulholland, to come and inspect it. And he did. No. He inspected it that morning looked at the muddy water coming out of the hillside and said, eh, it's a leak, it's normal, and went home. Oh, boy. The dam burst that night, hours later. Oh, boy. Oh, my oh gosh. Boy. Yeah. Just to get a picture of it, we're talking about a dam about 250 feet tall, concrete, curved, 
This dam doesn't look that out of place, but if you're an engineer and look carefully at it, you realize it's a little too skinny. This is a dam that they decided to raise twice during construction. They just kept adding more to the top. They made it taller twice without ever increasing the width at the bottom. And so it created a, a real top-heavy scenario where the dam was just destined to tip over. And that's part of what happened. It actually failed in three ways at the same time. One, the dam tipped over. Two, the concrete was not mixed properly, so it didn't hold together. And three, the foundation was unsuitable. They accidentally built on a paleo landslide. They didn't know what that was at the time. Now we have geologists who can look at it and say, this ground is moving. Don't build here. They didn't have that back then. They just thought it was a nice skinny spot in the hillside. And now if you look out on Google Earth, you can see why it's a skinny spot in the hillside because there's a paleo landslide. They built right on top of it and the ground just dissolved out from underneath. And so it failed in three ways at once in the span of a few seconds. That's horrifying. It's so horrifying. But here's my question for you. If he had gone out there that morning and he sees the muddy water and he's like, yeah, this thing's going to collapse. Like, what the heck were they going to yeah, do in 12 hours? Do? Just get people out of the way, really? That's all you can well, do. Put some Bondo so if, on it. <laughs> <laughs> Put some duct tape. I mean, we're talking about a scenario that's that, uh, an A-B scenario that's impossible to know for sure. But theoretically, if they had opened every gate, they could have lowered the reservoir to the point where the top heaviness of it wouldn't have been as much of a factor. Oh, okay. So yes, it probably was preventable. Not that you're going to drain the whole thing, but at that stage, you know, with hydrostatic pressure, you lower it down five feet, 10 feet, that makes an enormous difference on the lower foundations. There's a straw that breaks the camel's back when it got to that exact precise level that it couldn't hold anymore. So even if it had been a foot lower, that might not have happened, right? It's true. It's true. And, and we'll never know for sure. What we now know about the geology is that there is no safe way to build a dam in that spot. <laughs> we now know that. We didn't know it at the time. It just so happens the exact same design of dam, almost the exact same specs, are in the Hollywood Hills, the Beverly Hills neighborhood. It's called the Hollywood Dam. And if, if I showed you a picture of it, you'd recognize it because it shows up in a lot of movies. That exact same design, there's a secondary structure in Hollywood. And the geologists tell us that that one's just fine because it's a different site, it's a different type of stone, it's a different type of foundation, and that one's good. Interesting thing, though, is that after the St. Francis Dam failure, enough people were freaked out at the possibility of the Hollywood Dam failing that they piled dirt on the downstream face of the Hollywood Dam just in case, just in case. So most of the Hollywood Dam you can't even see anymore because they buried it in dirt. Thank you so much for tuning in to another show. I wanted to let you know that this particular episode is generously sponsored by Blackbird Right-of-Way. They're a DBE-certified, women-owned right-of-way company. Now, while Blackbird is a full-service company, it's best known for its expertise in complex relocations. As you already know, taking classes or even getting a certification is no substitute for boots-on-the-ground experience. Kristen and her team have just that. Experience with almost any type of relocation conceivable. They'll do one parcel all the way up to 100 anywhere in the United States. Look them up at blackbirdrightofway.com and make them a part of your team. That's blackbirdrightofway.com. When I was doing my own research on this, this reminded me of a scene from a very popular movie from like, 2001, 2002, 2003, called Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? Did you ever see that movie? It was a Coen Brothers movie. I, I, I did, and, uh, yes. Spoiler alert. Well, if the movie's been out 20 years, there's no spoiler alert, right? That's right. So it 
towards the end of the movie, there's a, I guess, a dam failure, and everything is suddenly inundated with water. Right. That's, right, is, right. Is that like what happened, or was that even maybe this was even the inspiration behind the movie? Honestly, Oh Brother, Where Art Thou doesn't even do it justice. The collapse of St. Francis Dam was so dramatic. Some of the hillsides downstream that were hundreds of feet tall, the water went up and over because of the momentum that they had. There was a powerhouse about a mile downstream that had a brick building with steel turbines anchored in the ground that were just slicked off all the way down to bedrock. I mean, the amount of destruction out there is crazy. They found chunks of the dam, something like three quarters of a mile downstream. And we're talking chunks the size of houses, like tall enough to climb around on. Neat piece of trivia. I think you actually have a chunk of this dam, don't you? I sure do. I actually have two or three of them. I snuck them onto my luggage several years ago. But you can still visit the site of St. Francis Dam. If you go to Santa Clarita, California, and drive up San Francisco Quito Canyon Road, about five miles up, there's a point where it gets really, really windy. And then look on your right, and you will see these big pyramid-shaped chunks of rotten concrete out in the channel. You're going to want to hike out there in the winter or the spring. Don't go in the summer because there's a lot of rattlesnakes. But yeah, you can just find chunks of that dam hanging out in the canyon. This is almost 100-year-old concrete. And the reason I, I hang on to this is because I took this piece from the lowest reaches of the canyon. I went all the way down to the very bottom where the foundation should have been. And I picked this up because when we do our job well as engineers, no one ever sees our work, Ah, right? No one was supposed to ever see this rock again. Supposed to be buried at the bottom. But because someone didn't do their job properly, now this is on my mantle. And it's just a good reminder of what are you built on? What are you made of? What's your foundation? Yeah, a hundred year old piece of crappy concrete is what you've got there. Very, oh, very poor concrete. Yeah, there's a reason why we wash our aggregate now. Right, right. Okay, well, Adam, are you willing for a little time out to play a silly sure, game with sure. us? All right, let's, play, let's a play a game. Let's play a game. We are playing over under push, and that's where I'm going to give you three things, and you have to tell us and our listeners whether you think these items are either overrated, they're underrated, or eh, it's a push. They're aptly rated. Okay, uh, you win if I deem your opinions to be correct. Isn't that fun? <laughs> this is my life, Adam. I love it. I'm gonna go one at a time. However you want. You're are the, you ready? You're the boss of this game. I'm ready. I'm ready. All right. Your first item to determine whether it's overrated, underrated, or it's a push, is the band Pearl Jam. Ooh. Don't jack this up. We're going to see them in concert hey. tomorrow night. No, I, th I think that Pearl Jam is appropriately rated. I think they've got their place in music history, especially being a, a Pacific Northwest guy. So, yeah, I, I'd say appropriately rated. I think honor has been given that honor is due. Well, Adam, I like you a lot, but you are so wrong on this, okay? Pearl Jam is underrated. And yes, they have their place in history. They also have their place in today's music world where they're still producing and writing music and touring. And like Dave said, we are going to see Pearl Jam, not just tomorrow, but also again on Friday. Well, congratulations. I'm, I'm, so I'm, I'm so happy for you. Where are they playing? Uh, Fort Worth, Texas, which they've Fort never Worth, played Fort in Worth. Fort Worth. Yeah. So that's new. And no it's, no it's, be, it's a kind of a newer venue, kind of a little smaller than I'm used to. So super pumped about that. That's, that's crazy. I'm, I'm going down to DFW on Saturday. Oh, well, come say howdy. Well, before we leave Pearl Jam, I always have to get my two cents in. And Pearl Jam is this crazy contradiction to me. Like Eddie Vedder spent the first half of his career like a petulant child, just picking fights with people and taking positions for the hell of it. And he even still goes on these rants in the concert. I'm like, Eddie, your voice is so great. Just shut up and sing. 
But this band, and I think part of their success is this: the same core members have stayed together the whole time. Same lead guitarist, same rhythm guitarist, same bassist, Jeff Ament, who's wonderful, and Eddie. And when you've got a great singer, you've already got a leg up. So I think they've continued to put out great music, even though they have not had a platinum album since 1998. Yield. But they so still unfair. keep putting out good records. But I buy so their So you that would say that they are underrated. You know, Kristen gets to call the shots. I think they're appropriately rated. They're in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. You know, that's what, that's I, said. what I said. I know. I said appropriately. Guys, this rated. is my game, okay? okay? Oh, about, right, right. Okay. No, I'm about uh, to mute Judge both Kristen. Of you. <laughs> <laughs> We're getting, about to get time out. Okay. Adam. All right. Your second uh, object yes. for over under push is TikTok. Ooh. 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 Ah. Mm-hmm. Uh. Interesting. Well, I TikTok is the platform that I have the largest reach on, so I don't want to be down on it. Sure, right? sure. But, but I would say right now it's a little overrated. Yeah. Because, because the strategy, like I, I heard one person say that right now there's there's just one app and it's called video and you just swipe, right? Mm-hmm. That's, Instagram. that's Instagram Reels, that's YouTube Shorts, that's TikTok. Everyone's kind of doing the same thing. I think TikTok knows that and I think TikTok is going to try to jump ahead but they haven't done it yet. So right now, I would say overrated, but I don't expect that to stay the same. Oh, you're okay. Well, guess what? You're one for one. I agree. I agree. Maybe a little overrated. And we'll revisit that when they revamp or do whatever, however yeah. this social yeah. media it, it, it changes so quickly. It's so quickly. It changes so quickly. Well, I don't see that you have a large following on MySpace, so. <laughs> Anymore. <laughs> Anymore. Hello. Anymore. All right. Your final <laughs> item for over under push is... Southern California. Oh my goodness. I could talk I could do a whole episode <laughs> just on this. Okay. So I am born and raised in the Pacific Northwest. And I have come to learn that Southern California is just code for Los Angeles. That's what people say when they're from LA, but they don't want to name drop their city, right? Or or, you know, adjacent, like Anaheim or Orange County or, you know, sometimes Santa Barbara. Southern California is just code for I'm from the city. Here's something <laughs> you'll notice. No one from San Diego says Southern California. And it's even more Southern than LA, isn't it? Right. Okay. So I was born in Northern California and people say, oh, like the Bay Area? No, actual Northern California. I was born in Humboldt County, which remember the old uh, Snoop Dogg song about California? It's all good from Diego to the Bay. Yeah. Wait. San Diego to the Bay. He's missing half the state. (laughs) All the way from San Diego to the Bay. The term Southern California drives me nuts because it's a euphemism for L.A. The term Northern California drives me nuts because Northern California is a euphemism for San Francisco. Right. What about Monterey? And there's this whole other part of the state that everyone just ignores. And so I love the state of California, but they need to take a geography lesson. Southern California is overrated. I hadn't considered my thoughts on this. I'll just agree with you. I'll just agree with you. So you're two and one, which means this is a victory, Adam. Thank you for playing over under push. You're a winner. Oh, thanks for having yes. me. This is this has been the Excellent. best. Let's get back into talking about this amazing LA aqueduct. And what I really want to know at this point is so okay, we've got this amazing infrastructure. We have had the death, murder, and despair that I teased early in the episode. We've had dam collapses and dynamite and all kinds of crazy stuff. So in the end, aquifers built, people are rolling into Los Angeles at that point. What are the impacts on Los Angeles once we have this aqueduct in place? 
Oh, Los Angeles 10x its size in the next, I think, 15 years. Geography-wise, population-wise? Population-wise. It became a boomtown. It became a boomtown. And every time America would finish a war, soldiers come back and decide where they want to live. A lot of them went to Southern California, especially in the days after World War II, the 40s and 50s, LA just took off. That's when the freeway system was built. That's when the sprawl took off. That's when all these separate towns started connecting together, everything from Irving to Orange County, Anaheim. It all kind of became one big megapolis. And we can have a whole nother conversation about the mistakes that were made in that era when it came to transit and right-of-ways for the highways and all that. But none of it would have been possible in the first place if the water hadn't been there. It would have been an important site that would have been underutilized. Now, I'm sure that at some point people would have settled there anyway, but it wouldn't have nearly the economic impact or the cultural impact that it has today. Well, I read somewhere, so the population obviously is booming. They've got water. I also read somewhere that between 1909 and 1928, LA also grew in geography from 61 square miles to 440 square miles. And from what I understand, that had something to do with the surrounding areas needing water. Is that correct? I uh, remember Freddie, mm -hmm. the mayor, later turned water baron. He did a very clever thing where he wrote into the charter saying that it was illegal for the city of LA to sell water to any other municipalities. Meaning if anyone else wanted in, they had to be annexed. Uh -huh. And so all these surrounding towns that had their own city governments, their own city councils, their own ways of doing their own identities had to join in. And that's where we get a lot of the neighborhoods in L.A. today. You know, for example, the Los Angeles Rams Stadium, Stofi Stadium, is built in Englewood. Englewood used to be its own town. It's not anymore, but it's, you know, it's, part of, it's part of Los Angeles. But all of these, you look on the map, you see all these neighborhood names, almost like boroughs. Those were all communities that were annexed because they needed the water. It reminds me of conference realignment in the collegiate level. You want part of these TV rights, you got to join the Big Ten or you got to join the SEC. <laughs> Or nobody's joining well, the ACC. Yeah. The Big 12 has come they're, back. They're, they were almost dead. Yeah. <laughs> hey, I, I, hey I, I am definitely rooting for, for USC to lose every single one of their games in the Big 12 this year. <laughs> Me too. <laughs> Nothing like a grudge, Adam. Nothing, Nothing like, like a grudge. Oh, oh, yes. I have a grudge. So I wanted, I, before we wrap up, I want to turn back to the Owens Valley because there's still stuff going on there. And one thing that I noticed, which was fascinating to me, and I think it was in the Owens Valley, used to have water, and it's just been a dry lake bed, just completely dry. All this dust contributed to low air quality, and they've just started addressing that more recently. Well, they, they never really do it the way they need to, but they at least were trying to do something. I wonder if that was contributing to this smog that made L.A. so famous in the 70s and 80s. Any thoughts? The answer to that question is definitely no, just because of the way the prevailing winds go. Got it. The Owens River Valley is not anywhere upwind of Los Angeles. It's so far north, the prevailing winds are from the southwest, so it blows out towards Nevada. So no, it didn't contribute to the smog. I mean, the, the real issue is anytime you have a lake bed, you're always going to have fine particulate matter on the ground, and you're going to have certain heavy metals. If you've been watching the situation at Black Rock Desert with Burning Man, you know, we know that some of these lake beds are actually toxic, right? We have a similar situation with the Owens River Valley. The dust is a concern. Is it affecting a major metro area? In my opinion, no. But the thing is, it doesn't have to be affecting a major metro area to be able to get the EPA's attention. And so as soon as the paperwork is filed, now it's just started the whole process. And 
I've heard them doing some experiments, like putting a limited amount of water in the lake bed, just to kind of wet it down a little bit. And as soon as you do that, the birds start coming back. So there's been some really positive ancillary effects to putting a little bit of water back on the lake bed, but there's really no realistic way that we're going to see the lake come back as long as LA is drinking from the Owens Valley. There just isn't enough water to do both. And in another fascinating turn of events, um, and this has been five or six years ago, but Owens Valley kind of turned the property rights industry on its head where that locality began utilizing eminent domain to get its property back, or they were threatening to use eminent domain. They claimed it was taken from them, and so they were going to use eminent domain. And what's what's really interesting about this is eminent domain is so unpopular. And those of us who represent the condemning authorities, we have to go to court. We have to convince jurors not to unfairly reward the landowner who's lost his or her property or its property with a windfall. Okay, that's our challenge. Is like you can't you can't make them rich just because of the inconvenience. You have to pay them what's called right, just right. compensation, which is fair market value. Well, turn that on its head, where everybody's still pissed off about what happened a hundred years ago, and then you start using eminent domain to grab the property back from I don't know the water authority or another locality or something like that. I could just see the jury saying, "Well, look what you did to our land. You took it from a viable ranching and farming." location to a dust bowl, this property is worth one penny. So we're going to take it. And we're not going to pay you squat to get this property back. Don't know how it turned out. I don't know how it turned out. I just know that for a while, the LA Times was following that story. It, as it, it would be interesting to explore the redevelopment of the Owens Valley, but not for agricultural purposes, maybe for ranching purposes or agritourism or something like that. Something that doesn't require as much water because the Mulholland Eaton group, they never wanted the land to begin with. Right. They had no interest in actually developing that land. They just wanted the water. Yeah. Right. You know, it'd be like if you're out in Texas and you buy a, a ranch just for the mineral rights, and then you let the ranch die. Similar situation. So it would be interesting to see what it's worth now as something other than farmland. But there's no scenario where that land with its water is worth more than what the water is doing in Los Angeles. Ah, uh-huh. Interesting. Right. And that doesn't make it right. This isn't a just like I'm not framing it as a justice issue. I'm just talking about pure economics. The best value for that water is to send it to the city, unfortunately, for the people in the Owens Valley. Well, I think it's hard when you see these situations that happened 100 years ago. And and I'm seeing it through the frame of mind of I do this kind of work for a living and we have all these regulations and landowners have so many more rights than they did back then. And it's like, how could that have happened? But no, from what I understand, from what I've read and from what you've said, Mulholland and Eaton and their crew, they weren't doing anything that was illegal at the time, correct? It's dubious to say if the way they did it was entirely legal Ah, because uh people didn't necessarily get all, like all of the I's weren't dotted and all the T's weren't crossed. I mean, today you would have a pretty solid case to be made if, say, couriers didn't show up on time and give proper notice, Mm -hmm. if disclosures weren't followed, there's compliance rules and all that. Yes, they followed the law when it came to acquiring the rights. How they seized it might have bypassed some due process. And that's where the shadiness comes in. The truth is everything is legal until you get caught, right? No, no, but that, that doesn't make it doesn't make it right at all. Yeah, yeah. It, it, yeah. it doesn't make it legal, but I, I hear what you're saying. And you know, it this this kind of harkens back to the last episode where you joined us when we we're talking about the Hoover Dam. And mm-hmm. one thing we discussed in that episode was could that thing ever be built 
nowadays? And I think the answer is probably yeah. no. We could never do that now. OSHA wouldn't let us, you know, if nothing else. Well, well OSHA wouldn't let us build it the same way they built it. Good, very good. It, it would probably go. 10x the, 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 the cost. I think with Hoover Dam, the environmental side would, would kill it. But you could absolutely build it safely today. And you just couldn't do it for that budget. Right. It would cost a lot right. more. Right. And so you have things like uh, we did an earlier episode on the Brooklyn Bridge and the way they constructed that. And people were getting the bends by going down in the caisson. Right. And the Hoover Dam and now the aqueduct. I just I couldn't see this happening in modern times. I just couldn't see it happening. L.A. would just have to stay a desert. Yeah, most likely, most likely. I mean, there, there's different eras, you know, like like we're past the point now where we have a frontier. And, and we're past the point where we look at any land and say that it's worthless or aired or no one's using right. it. Like we now recognize that someone is using everything. And if not now, then some point in the, in the past. And so it's a lot harder to take advantage of something like that, the way the farmers in the Owens Valley were taken advantage of. And I, and I mean that in the, in the negative way. They were taken advantage of. It'd be harder to do that today. And that's probably a good thing. I don't want someone coming and taking my land, right? Yeah. No, no. I, I think there's a reason that we have just the concept of just compensation and these constitutional yeah. Yeah. limitations on the ability to seize property. There's a reason for these things. And I think Correct. those limitations existed back then. We just yeah. maybe yeah. didn't have the watchdogs, for lack of a better description, to enforce it. Right. Right. At least right. Right. out there in the Wild West. Well, let's imagine, uh, let's do this thought experiment. Let's imagine that the Los Angeles Basin was just being built up as a boomtown city, similar to, say, Las Vegas or Dubai in, in the UAE. You know, imagine that that scenario was happening in Los Angeles today. I think that the Owens River Valley would still be a prime candidate for a municipal water source. The geology still makes sense. It's still downhill. It's still the most energy efficient way to move water. It's certainly the best climate scenario, right? Desalination puts a lot of pollution into the environment. The Owens River system down the LA Aqueduct does not. There's virtually no carbon that comes out of that system. So there's still a case that this makes sense. I think in modern times, though, you would be looking at a very different process of acquiring the rights. And it would be much longer and more prolonged, but I think it could probably still happen. I think some people would probably get rich in the process up in Owens Valley, though. That's what I was yeah, going to say. Yeah. Maybe the people getting rich are the people in Owens Valley and not Mr. Mulholland and his posse. Quite possibly. Yeah. Quite possibly. And because remember, the Los Angeles of the times was not one that was overcapitalized. These were guys who saw the future. Their present didn't have fat coffers, right? They were willing to take big risks at the hope of getting rich later in life. Right. They didn't have the money then. And so we're in a different situation now. Money's a lot easier to borrow now. And so I, I could see a scenario where the Owens River Valley could be bought out legally and in a way that gave due process to everything. I, I could see that happening. It would mean the water would be a lot more expensive, but it would still be cheaper than desalination and still be cheaper than bringing it from some of the other sources in the region. And a, a tip of the hat to Ms. Short over here and all the other relocation agents. There was no such thing as the Uniform Relocation Act before 1972. So if we tried to do that now, you'd be relocating a bunch of farms and steeds and heads of cattle. I'm on it. I'm on it. Hey, I, a random question. Is Mulholland Drive named after William Mulholland? Do you know? Yes, it is. That's kind of the amazing thing. This is the guy who single-handedly allowed L.A. to be a place, so he has a, a street named after him, but he died in disgrace. After the St. Francis Dam collapsed, he went into a deep, dark depression. He was mortified at how his decisions had caused such loss of life. He was never arrogant. 
He was never defensive. He immediately went public and say, if there's anyone to blame, blame me. And he died of a broken heart within a couple of years. That's so sad. And then to add insult yeah. to injury, he's got a weirdo David Lynch movie named after him. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good movie. It is weird. It's an interesting it's movie. So I mentioned earlier the death tally from the St. Francis Dam collapse. I mentioned it's somewhere between 400 and, and 700, somewhere in there. The reason why we don't actually know is because there was a significant camp encampment of migrant workers in the canyon. And we don't know how many people were there. We just know they didn't live. And it took 50 or 60 years for the suburbs to eventually reach that part of the outskirts of Santa Clarita, where they started building houses out on this floodplain. And developers have discovered mummified remains as recently as the 2010s of victims of the St. Francis Dam collapse. Wow. Wow. They're still finding bodies. 80, 90 years later. Could there possibly be a better note to wrap up on than mummified bodies in the 2010s? Despair. Yeah, I think we'll wrap on that note. And thank you for not letting us down on that. I do want to say two things. Number one, Adam, you sent us a link to a great clip from Drunk History. Listeners, if you've never watched Drunk History, first of all, it's a riot. But there's a whole segment on Drunk History about this aqueduct. And... And they they nail they it. Nail they, they, it. They, they get it right. It's hilarious. It, Jack Black is Jack in Black, it. Jack Black. Jack Black's in it. It's, it's amazing. Thing. Funniest thing you'll ever see. But thank you. This was fascinating. Listeners, if you haven't already, run Don't Walk to TikTok and probably all the other socials, I think. We're working on building up YouTube and Instagram. Subscribe on YouTube. We're almost to 1,000 subscribers. We'll help you get there and follow him. It's at Armchair Engineer. Adam, thank you so much. This was riveting as always, and I hope you'll come back and see us again sometime. Thanks so much for having me. You guys are great. Thanks, Adam.